have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. But what makes a shingle a 40-year shingle, say, as opposed to a 20-year shingle? Let's say one of the obvious elements will be the thickness of the shingle, the thickness of the wearing surface as well. If you compare, if you put them side by side, a basic three-tab shingle that may have a 25-year warranty on it, and you're looking at a 40-year shingle, you're going to find the thickness. Now, also, if you read the technical side of the technical bulletins or information that's on the, the manufacturer's data sheets, you're going to find that the weight of them increased tremendously as you go up in number of years for warranty. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Red. Welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Remember, a house is what you build, a home is what you make it. And Ken is here every weekend at this time to help you deal with the issues that are important to today's homeowners. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can forward questions to Ken's website. That's KenTheContractor.com. We're going to start today with a little bit of a history lesson, Ken. I want to talk for a moment about uh, the history of your floor, and I don't mean that in the sense of flooring materials, but in many cases, we see multiple layers of floor, subfloor, and different types of materials in homes that are even 20 and 30 years old. Now, for those of you out there listening that happen to be in homes that were built in the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, especially if you've done any renovation or remodeling work. But you're going to start out in these home, in any home with a structure and with a subfloor that was originally installed. And in newer structures today, if it's on a wood floor underlayment or wood floor structure, wood joist, we're still going to have the same subfloor material. And what happens when we install flooring is we build up from there. Typically, depending on the product, there may be a second underlayment material that is applied. If we're installing a ceramic tile today, or in some cases even certain types of sheet vinyl or vinyl tile, we will put a subfloor material, may only be a quarter of an inch thick, but on top of a three-quarter inch plywood structural floor, if you will. In older homes, typically you started out with a board, not a plywood. Plywood didn't exist back in the 20s and 30s. So you will start out with some type of a board. It may have been the finished product, a tongue-and-groove wood flooring that was in place that has been covered over time. But when you think a little bit about the history of the floors, we discussed in the studio the other day uh, with, with one individual here, he was quite surprised when he, was, he and his wife were ready to replace a floor in an older home only to have the folks out saying, this has already raised up so much that if we put another floor on top of this, you're not going to be able to open the doors. It had that much in terms of materials laid on top of the initial subfloor. So when you're getting ready to remodel, this is something that you need to put in your budget. If nothing else, you need to be prepared for a surprise that you're not anticipating. Because if you have floor on top of floor, you reach a point that you can no longer continue to add, sometimes just because of clearances of cabinets, cabinet doors, walk doors that may be in the structure. Maybe there are other elements in terms of plumbing or air conditioning that just cannot be extended any further to make that work. And what that means is you're going to have to remove at least a layer or multiple layers of the floor material and the underlayment that may have been applied over previous layers. One of the things that I want you to be aware of, depending on where you live, too, is you may be getting into today what's considered hazardous products. Now, in many parts of the country, this is exempt, but you still, just because it's exempt from certain codes, doesn't mean you're not working with a hazardous product. Older floor tiles, older substrate materials, underlayment products, contained asbestos. 
So if you're going to be doing any of the demolition work yourself, you need to at least be educated on how to treat this, how to deal with it. Many parts of the country, asbestos removal in single-family homes are exempt from the state and federal codes. Others are not. Check with your local jurisdiction. But again, forget the codes for a moment. It's still about personal safety. If you feel like you're dealing with this, you might want to contact an expert in how to handle the asbestos, whether it's in the mastic, it could be in the floor tile itself, it could be in the underlayment. The long and short to all this is that never be surprised when you're in an older home, when you start to undertake a project, whether it's flooring, removing wall covering, even removing trim, only to find that you have more work ahead of you. And flooring is especially true. You may pull carpet up in some cases only to find that there's a sheet vinyl or an old linoleum layer beneath that. You may find there's a gorgeous hardwood floor that's just begging to be refinished. So sometimes the surprises are pleasant and gives you an opportunity to to move in a direction you had not planned. But remodeling can be an adventure. It can be a huge expense. But if you go into it with open eyes and you are prepared to spend some dollars to do it right, it can be a wonderful thing when it comes to restoring your home. Kitchen, living room, it doesn't matter. Is this a recent development? Because I know it's become more and more common as we've started to use these fabricated floor coverings uh, where folks have not taken up the old floor, but just in a lot of cases, we want to get this done quickly and in many cases economically as possible and just start putting the stuff down over the top. That's been done for decades, and it's still done in, in today's times. Sometimes it is about economics. It, in some cases, you would say the underlayment that's in place is not sufficient to support even the new material. So if it's a fairly thin combination, wouldn't be uncommon for an applicator or for a supplier to say, look, let's just put the new one over the top of it. We'll have the added stability of what's below here, and it gives you even a more rigid surface for the new product. But at some point, it's just layering. We've encountered that in, in, in my career, in my business, many times on wall covering in professional offices and uh, older homes. And as some would say, that really is there's a history there. You can go back in ages and time, and that's what people do when they're restoring Homes especially to be accurate, they're looking at the paint, they're looking at the wall covering of the day, they peel it off one layer at a time to see what happened in 1787, what was installed originally. And uh, it it still is not uncommon. I will say it is less common, though, probably than it was years ago, in my experience, to just apply over the top of something. And I guess my other concern, as you pointed out, over the years we've had these materials, which everybody thought were fine and dandy and nice and safe. And now years later, we go back and we look and we cringe at that stuff, that this is stuff that was put down not only in our homes, but in public buildings and offices. And and now when you have to deal with it, it can be a major, major headache, as you alluded to. Well, what we've determined is there are products that we thought were safe decades ago that turned out to be health hazards, asbestos being one that most everybody knows about. But one that's fairly recent is lead-based paint. Now, lead-based paint has been pulled off the market. It was years ago. But for homes built in the last uh, 20 to 30 years, it's not an issue. But, again, if you're in a home built in the 40s, 50s, uh, 60s, most paints contained lead. And so if you're sanding that, you're creating this airborne fine dust that is a health hazard, as well as the chips that can get into everything from your planter areas outside to uh, just areas that kids may be exposed to inside. So we do have these health hazards that we now know about, and since we know about it, we need to treat it appropriately, and we want everybody listening to us to be safe in what they're doing. So if you're going to get into renovation, especially in these older homes, beware, number one, of, of 
asbestos-containing components that you have, a lot of insulation, floor products, floor mastic, even glazing compound. The, the putty that holds glass in some of the sashes contain that. Shingles, much of the plaster, all contain some degree of asbestos. And the lead-based paint is an issue because most of us are, at some point, we'll do painting in our own homes. We may not be removing floors, but we'll do painting. We need to be careful about it. You can go online today. The federal government has posted health information on how to deal with lead-based paint for the do-it-yourselfers, the type mask you need, the respirators, and how you handle the product. It's not as hazardous as asbestos, but it is dangerous to be breathing, and we want to treat it right. So go online, do some research, and you can still do your own painting. Just do it safely. Coming up this hour on Ken the Contractor, we're going to talk about universal living. We'll talk about grab bars. And also, if you're getting ready to do a major lighting project, you're going to want to stay tuned. One half hour from now, Ken will give you a pretty nifty app of the week. That's all coming up as we continue. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Have a question about your home inside or out? You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Time for us to go to the phones once again. This time around, it's Mike who joins us. He's got a drainage issue. Mike, hi. You're on the air with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Uh, I have a machine building shed. That was built uh, below grade uh, to the north of the building. Uh, I have a flat area about five to six feet, and then a pretty uh, uh, high bank that's about uh, six foot high. You correct me if I'm wrong. What I was going to do is line that with uh, riprap rock like the state does on the highways, and then at the bottom come up with uh, some railroad ties just a foot or two high. And then behind that, I was going to lay some of this black corrugated pipe for drainage away uh, from the bank that would collect the runoff. My question is, are there different types of pipes that are available? Uh, the black corrugated pipe with holes all the way around or the leach pipe just holes on the top. I don't, didn't want to trap water at the bottom. Which direction should I go? Well, I'd be using a perforated pipe on all sides, whether it has the slots or it has the holes, and you want to be sure you've got a fabric over it so you don't it doesn't silt in over time. But what you're trying to do first is collect the water, and if there's excessive water, then it's going to convey, it's going to move through that pipe because that's the path of least resistance. Even with collection holes in it, it will still move through that pipe. And if there's minimal water, then it's, it's going to work its way in into it, and you're not going to have the pressure on the other side that wants to move downstream or work up against this foundation wall. And that's the principle behind these footing drains or basement drains that are installed. Typically, you'll see a fully perforated pipe. And folks have asked me, well, how does that work? If you've got a pipe full of holes, how's the water going anywhere? Well, if there's enough volume of water, it's still going to flow through that. These holes, these slots are fairly small, but they're designed to collect still a volume of water. And if you've got a break in this line, if you can imagine a water hose... With the hole in the hose, it may still be connected. You're not going to get that full volume flowing out the discharge side of it. It's going to stop it. It's right there with all the pressure. It's going to work its way through this hole. And so, so you're, you're trying to relieve the pressure so that it cannot. There's no way pressure can build up against your foundation wall. That water is relieved and will come back into this pipe and gradually dissipate, work its way into the drainage system. Right. Well, in this case now, of course, the this pipe, and I've already had foundation uh, drainage around the foundation, uh, this is a flat area that's about six foot away from the building at the foot of a of a six foot bank. Right. That I'm trying to control erosion and water coming off of that bank to divert it around the building instead of coming up against the building. So you, what you're saying is 
you would recommend a pipe with the holes all the way around it, and would you put a uh, gravel layer naturally below and above it? Yes, I would. And what you're doing is creating, a, you're doing the same thing that you have done for your foundation. You're trying to reduce the amount of water flow and pressure that moves laterally in that ground up against your existing building. You're just intercepting it several feet away from the building. Right. And so since you have much more flow, sheet flow, coming off the side of this hill, you're going to pick that water up. You're going to create a path of least resistance, essentially a French drain. And right. it's going to collect in that pipe, and it will move laterally, or it will move around your structure if that's how you move it. It's it's no different. You could do the same thing by simply constructing an earthen swale, not putting the pipe or stone in, and a swale being a ditch of sorts to collect the water and convey it around your structure. That doesn't mean you've eliminated all the water in that six or eight foot area because you're not. You're never going to get rid of that water, but you've reduced the large volume and you're reducing the pressure in that soil, the water within that soil, so it doesn't work against that foundation quite as much. Yeah, I'm saying some, some people just have suggested that I only use the pipe with the drains, the holes on the top. Well, then what you're missing then is you're only collecting the immediate surface runoff. Any water that gets into the ground up on that hillside that's moving horizontally or laterally below grade is not being collected. Yeah, I would be trapped in that water. Yes. And that's the reason I would I would be using a perforated pipe all the way around because you're dealing with large volumes of water coming off this hillside. It's going right. to get in that pipe and it's going to move around. And, get, and you and use a sock material. I would use a sock material or some type of a fabric that wraps it so it can't silt in. I see. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call. We appreciate you listening. Thank you, Mike. We do appreciate it. And we've got time for another phone call at 800-614-2975. It's Lois. Hi, Lois. You're on the air with Ken Patterson. Ken, the contractor. Hi, I have a question. We built a home 20 years ago and thought we had the, were putting in the best windows at that time, and they were Anderson. But ever since we've had leaking of air around and under the window, I'm sure it was an installation issue. Is there anything we can do at this point? As far as the manufacturer is concerned, is, is that your question, or in terms of just taking care of the air infiltration problem? just taking care of the air leaking in Okay. out. Well, what I would suggest to you, because it's it's long out of warranty, you may have right. had a glass warranty that extended up to about 20 years on the, the, the double-pane glass, assuming that's what they are. No, they're not double-pane. Okay. Single-pane. What I would recommend is you contact someone that is an authorized representative to sell and install Anderson windows. Now, you mentioned Anderson by name. They've got a good reputation in the industry. There are many other manufacturers that likewise have a good reputation, but there can be issues with any manufacturer, regardless of how good they are, right. with with a manufacturing problem there, as you say, can also be an install problem. And the reason I suggest you contact someone locally in your area that's authorized as both sales and install for Anderson is because they're going to be trained in dealing not only with the proper install of the windows, but also the maintenance of the windows. They're going to have access to components that a lot of people will not. If you need new weather stripping, if there happened to be an issue with one of the jam tracks in there, there was a problem maybe on those windows they had a felt trim around the sash or a seal that was never installed correctly, they're going to have access to those small components that someone else would say, oh, you have to replace the window or replace the sash, when really all you need to do is replace a weather stripping element. 
And I think that would be your best bet. That's where I would be going at this point. And sometimes it's as simple as a lock not working correctly to adequately seal that. There are also neoprene strips at the top of most of these windows that seal them in place. Some will have an interconnecting sort of a U-shaped vinyl fin where they lock, and I have seen issues with that. So the problem may be relatively minor, and it's good that you paid attention to it because you're consuming excess energy. But that'd be my recommendation to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the call. Thank you, Lois. Bye. We appreciate it. I'll get time for one quick email, Ken, and I'll uh, condense it here. It's from Georgia in Virginia. Wants to know, does ivy damage brick wall? They've got some ivy. She likes it. Her husband doesn't. Is it a problem? Well, Georgia, I have to tell you that there are mixed reviews on that, but the general consensus in the industry, including people in the horticulture world, is that over time, ivy especially certain types, English ivy, can damage brick walls. Ivy has small suckers on it that that grab hold of things to continue to grow and to root. And when we look at the brick, some brick is more porous than others. I'm not as concerned with the brick as I am with the mortar. In older homes, especially homes built, let's say, pre-1930s, you're going to find that there was not the quality to the mortar that you will see today in more modern times, meaning it may have had too much sand, not enough uh, cement in it. It may have been uh, just not as strong as what we have today. And if you have an older structure that has cracks or holes or joints in the mortar, then the ivy has a tendency to latch hold of that and to grow and develop within those holes. And in time, especially you get into winter months, more water can get into it. It will freeze. It will expand. It's going to knock more of the mortar out, and eventually you'll not have mortar holding your brick together. Now, this may take decades But the general consensus in the industry is that that's not the best place to be growing ivy. But my suggestion to you is if you really like the look of the ivy is you end up with some type of a trellis work or something that it can grab hold of and still provide the same shading or maybe the same look around your home. Georgia, thanks for your email. Don't forget, you can forward your questions to Ken through our website, KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson. He is Ken the Contractor. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 if you've got a question about your home inside or out. That's 800-614-2975. You can also reach him through his website. That's Ken the Contractor. Com. One of the things that we try to keep tabs on are some of the latest changes and innovations in universal living, which is becoming a bigger and bigger issue for all of us. And universal living today is for all ages and in all locations, and it means just what it implies. It makes things more accessible to us in our homes, whether it's a matter of opening a door or ease of using a shower or just accessing a set of stairs. Today we're going to talk a moment about grab bars. And yes, I said grab bars, and I know a lot of you are rolling your eyes saying, well, all I can think of are hospitals right now. No, we're not talking that. Grab bars has taken on a life of its own, meaning that you see them in all kinds of styles and colors. They're designed today to fit any decor. They are designed to go in our homes, not just the old industrial, and I'll use that term loosely, but really uh, medical grab bars that we have seen for decades in hospitals and medical buildings. And what the industry realizes is that these are convenience items. They're not just for those of us from time to time that may have infirmities or disabilities that require us to use those, but for everybody from the youngest member to the oldest member in the household. Grab bars are not only designed to be used in the traditional locations of, let's say, showers, bathrooms, uh, around toilet areas, if you will, but they are now designed to be used in conjunction with stairs and access points of minimal steps. 
So if you're thinking a little bit about how you can get past an area that's a problem to you, do you need to steady yourself occasionally? Have you got a youngster uh, that may need uh, assistance from time to time? Or just in that shower and you want to grab hold of something occasionally, a grab bar might be for you. And you're also sitting there thinking, that's great, Ken. I've got a fiberglass shower. I don't have any blocking in the wall. How am I going to install a grab bar? The good news is that because the industry has really paid attention to how we're using these, not just for medical purposes, they have developed systems that allow you to secure and properly secure to handle the weight and the load grab bars in fiberglass walls on these acrylic or fiberglass tub shower units. So there's not likely to be a place in your home that you cannot install a grab bar vertically, horizontally, diagonally. They mount to the floor. They actually mount to the ceiling. There's no matter, you know, if there's a place you would have a need for it, you can find a grab bar or an assisted device like that to work for you. So don't let somebody tell you it's not made because I'm telling you as a professional, they're designed to go in almost every place that you have a need for one, again, whether it's for medical purposes or just to make it easier to get around in your home. Do people make one mistake, though, and that is, as you mentioned, they've given these almost universal applications. But, and it's something you had mentioned a little bit early on another one of our programs, make sure what you're anchoring it to can support the weight because in a lot of cases, particularly if you're getting up out of a tub or something else, it's dead weight. So it has to be fairly strong of what you're attaching it to. The grab bar itself may not be the problem. Yeah, the grab bar typically will not be. What you don't want to use are these hollow wall anchors. When you put a grab bar in, you have to recognize that it needs to be installed to carry your full body weight, whether you're pulling on it horizontally, if it's a wall-mounted device, or from a sheer standpoint, if you're almost as if you're trying to raise your whole body off the floor by pressing down on it. Most building codes will require that it resist at least 300 pounds of pressure. And some may be more than that, some slightly less, but that's typically what you're talking about. And that means it needs to be mounted firmly into a wood stud, into a floor joist if it's overhead, uh, into blocking that's placed in the wall. But I go back to a comment I made, though, regarding hollow fiberglass tub shower units, that even in these applications, if you purchase the right device and there are kits designed for these, those grab bars can be made to withstand all of the code requirements and make you safe. But don't have a false sense of impression for uh, or safety for you or someone else simply by installing it with hollow anchors or into a fiberglass wall. All right, our contact number again is 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. That's the number Lisa dialed, and she joins us right now. She's got a question. Hey, Lisa, you're on the air with Ken the Contractor. I have a ceiling question. Okay. Our house, our house was uh, born in 1967. We've lived in it uh, for the past six plus years, and it has a grid type ceiling. I've never seen one before. Um, there's no, um, you know, there's no metal grid to hold the individual squares up, and it's like a, I guess. I haven't measured it, but it looks like a 12 by 12 square. Is it probably a 9 by 9 or a 12 by 12? And is this is, it, 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 you see lines in that pattern, and it, yeah. this is probably a tongue and groove system. Okay. Well, and what concerns me, uh, two things. It's, it's sagging in a couple areas, and I don't understand it, so I don't know how it's put up there. But, um, and also, at any given time, could we replace it, and would we have to take it completely down, or would we have to just put something over it? If you're describing what I think you are, and I'll, let me give you just briefly a little more information, 
Uh, these tiles are consistent in size. They appear to be a tile, and you've got a line in that 12 by 12 pattern, and it's slightly uh, where the line occurs. It's slightly recessed or maybe beveled. Yes. Okay. This is most likely a stapled ceiling tile, meaning that either there's solid plywood behind it or it's installed on some type of a furring strip system. And these are common. Uh, they're still being used today, but they were common, especially in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the, the good news is that you can, uh, you can replace a single tile and not replace the whole ceiling. The bad news is you're not likely to match that exact mm-hmm. tile pattern. And right. there's a little work to it. Because they are tongue and groove, that means that one interlocks into the other, and they keep going until you hit the sidewall, and then you've got a square cut at the sidewall, and then they're typically trimmed at that point. And you probably have some type of a wood trim right at the wall that, that seals yeah. this. Okay. So it's, this is like a, a puzzle piece. If you start in the middle, um, if it's interlocking, I mean, if it were square edge, that's fine. What I would suggest is you find an area, and I doubt that this is just square edge. All that I'm familiar with are a tongue and groove. But if you can find a closet or some area out of the way, and remove one starting at the side, because that's going to be a square cut where it abuts the wall. Pull okay. that first tile out, and you'll see how it interlocks. Now, if it does, then it's going to be difficult to replace those out in the middle. You can cut them out. In most cases, the product you can cut even with a razor knife, and you can replace it. Uh, you may see it. Have you repainted this ceiling, or is it still the original color? It's still the original color. I mean, there's a couple areas, I think, that they've, Former owners painted maybe because of a little leak. Some water stains? Yes. Sure, okay. Well, the ceilings can be painted, and if you have a lot to repair, that's probably what you'd want to look at. You can buy the tile, but you're not going to match the color the same. There's aging to it and so forth, but you're not going to find the exact same pattern match. Uh, Take a razor knife, cut those out, and then you can today you can glue those back in place so you don't have fasteners running through them with construction adhesives. That would be a quick and simple repair. The the right way to do it long term means you take it out from the wall, coming all the way back in, tie the tongue and groove back in, staple those to the furring strip behind them. That's how it was put up most likely. If you okay. for the sagging tiles that you have, they mm-hmm. may have simply released from the wood or the furring strip behind them, mm-hmm. and without tearing the ceiling out, I would go through with a surface fastener. Now that's going to put a hole in it. I would slightly recess that. And then you can okay. take a caulk or a, or a drywall compound and touch that head up and then touch it up with paint because if it's stained from sagging anyway, you're going to have to paint it to begin with. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for the call. Mm-hmm. Take care. Thank you, Lisa. We do appreciate your call. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, at 800-614-2975. That's a contact number. It's 800-614-2975. And while you're online, go to Ken's website. Find a whole bunch of home improvement information right there online at KenTheContractor.com. We'll take a quick break and come right back with more. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Do you have questions about your home, inside or out? KenTheContractor.com is all you need to know. I'm Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Visit KenTheContractor.com for answers to plumbing, fencing, electrical, roofing, painting, heating, fireplaces, decks, and much more. Submit your questions or call anytime. Remember, KenTheContractor.com, where folks come for professional answers. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt. Thanks for joining us this weekend. Don't forget, Ken is here every weekend to answer questions about your home inside now. We also like to keep you up to date with some cool little gadgets or fun things or things that may make your life a little bit easier to deal with. And Ken, you found quite a few of these in your business, including with your consulting business now. We've got an app of the week for you. Well, so many of us carry smartphones around or tablets or still laptops with us that these apps have become so common for many of the manufacturers as a way of getting their product in front of us. And I have to tell you, folks, I absolutely love the change in the industry, even though I'm not a high-tech person myself. I don't see myself that way, but I really bought into this part of the industry. And our app of the week this week comes to us from Progress Lighting which means we don't have to tote all these catalogs around anymore. And it's so easy to update these rather than contractors giving you things that were published a month ago and it's no longer current. When you go to select the light, Progress Lighting is one of the nation's largest lighting companies, a very common brand in most of our households. Progress Lighting announces that they have now put their entire catalog on an app available for your iPhone, iPad, and Android phones, and it's totally free of charge. I want you to go to progresslighting.com slash mobile.aspx or just go to your market on your smartphone, and you'll find the Progress Lighting app posted there. Now you'll be able to search by product number, category, family finish, and brand. All of those things that if any of you have ever been shopping for lights, you know those are all key items when you're looking to match your decor or whether you're remodeling or whether you're building new. So Progress Lighting now has their entire catalog on a free app for your iPhone, iPad, and Android phones, and you're not going to see me at your door carrying an armload of catalogs around anymore. I know. Let's get to our mailbags. We're getting more and more of these mailbags, and we try to get to as many as we can each week on the program. This comes to us from Larry in Fort Cybert, West Virginia. I'm building a large workshop. It's about 30 by 36 with a concrete floor slab. My neighbor and I have finally completed removing the rock in the footing line with his backhoe breaker. About half the footing area is clay, so that was easy. Another friend who works in construction tells me that this is not the best footing condition. I may have a lot of cracks in my block walls does he know what he's talking about ken or should i just move ahead well as much as you want to move ahead and you want me to side with you on the move ahead portion i am going to tell you a little bit of both you can move ahead but here's a word of caution any geotech engineer will tell you that a structure is going to settle in spite of all the 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 best preparations that you can put on the earthwork below that As a builder, we do all we can. We bring geotech engineers. We bring soil engineers. uh, We do compaction testing to be sure that it is compacted. But the intent is that the soil is compacted to a uniform level so that when a structure is built, it will settle at a uniform rate. So if you've got extremely tight clay and now you're going to impose this structure of several hundred thousand pounds, you can only anticipate that it's going to move just a, a fraction, and we may be talking just a fraction, but it could be enough that it creates hairline cracks in your block work if it's not moving at a uniform level. That's why your friend is telling you that part of this being on on solid rock and part of it being on clay may not be the best thing going forward for your block walls. What will typically happen is once you build this garage, you put your house, single or two-story, office building, it doesn't matter, that that rock moves absolutely zero. It will have no movement, but 
the structural elements that are on the clay may compress that clay even if it's a tenth of an inch. But that's enough to create some displacement and cause problems in the walls, the floors, maybe even in the roof line. So typically what you will need to do is to over-excavate, and you do not want to hear this, but to over-excavate that rock. Unless you can put the entire structure on rock, you need to over-excavate that rock, and then you come back and you cushion that with a layer of stone, and it may be rock dust that's compacted because that will still have just a little bit of give to it, just like you would do also on the top of your clay. So if you consult, and I'm not suggesting you have to do this, but as a professional, I do this building, commercial buildings especially, If you consult a geotech engineer, a soil specialist, they're going to tell you exactly what I am, that you want to be sure your structure will settle at a uniform level with the best compaction there and having these two different surfaces create a problem. So I have to side with your friend telling you, you want to do a little more work, take another Saturday, break out some more rock, and then you also want to reinforce that foundation a little differently where you make the transition between the two to help reduce the potential for any movement in that wall. You may add some additional reinforcing steel. You may also thicken the footing at that location. If you do this right, you're not going to have any problems going forward with your block walls. All right, get time for one more quick email. All right, this one comes to us also uh, out of Virginia. It said, our son wants a waterbed in his upstairs bedroom. He's saving the money from his lawn jobs this year. I commend you for that. My question is, how can we tell if the floor will support all of that weight? Well, Ben, who sent this to me, let me tell you, first off, most residential floors throughout our listing area are designed with a certain live load. And a live load is what you impose on. A dead load is the weight of the structure. But when it's designed, there's a live load considered. And in most cases, it's somewhere around 40 pounds per square foot. It may be 30 in areas. It may be 50. It may be 60 in other areas. But if you assume a 40-pound per square foot live load and you assume that this bed is only about a foot thick and you're filling it with water, some assumptions you have to realize here, water weighs about 8.3 pounds per gallon, um, that when you look at the total volume of that, I don't think you're going to have an issue with it, but I don't know the size of the bed from your email, so what I'm going to suggest you do is that you run the math based on 8.3 pounds per gallon, look at the size, the thickness of the bed, and see how many square feet you're putting that load on. And then you do the division based on the square footage and see if you are exceeding 40 pounds a square foot. I really doubt that you are. There are water beds all over this country on second and third floor apartment buildings and homes. But since you're concerned about it, it's worth running the math. It's a pretty simple formula. All right, hold on just a second there, Ken. These formulas, they always confuse me. You know, pecs, bushels, pines, pounds, quart, making those conversions. So let's, let's go back over the water formula again, because particularly if you're putting a water bed on a second floor, you want to make sure that it doesn't end up in your dining room. Well, first off, I'm reasonably satisfied that if he lives in a house built by any code standards, that Ben's not going to have an issue here. But what he's not telling me is whether this is a single, a double, a king size. I don't know what the weight of the water will be in the bed. But the bed supplier will be able to tell him how many gallons this bed will hold. So if they tell you that the bed is going to hold 240 gallons, for example, um, of water, you're going to multiply that times 8.3, which is the typical, the standard weight of water right. per gallon, and you're going to get the total load with the, of this water sitting on that floor. And then you have to say, now what do I do with that? You've got to take the floor area. So if the bed is 6 by 6, that's 36 square feet, and you divide 36 square feet into the total weight of the water to see whether you're less than 40 pounds per square foot. And, again, I doubt seriously there would be any issue with this, 
But the fact that Ben has the concern is good. More of us should think about the way we are impacting our structures to be sure they're not going to sag. They may not fail, but what will happen is typically they'll sag over time. You'll see some deflection. You don't realize the amount of weight that some of this stuff is and how it has to be appropriately dispersed for the floor to handle that weight. Well, it's not just seasonal items where I really see bigger issues of people storing file boxes. We all have dead files, old taxes and records and books. We store those vertically because that's the best use of our space. But we concentrate that on maybe two square feet. We stack it eight feet high. All of a sudden, we have the equivalent of 300 square, uh, 300 pounds per square foot on that floor designed for 40. It's a wonder it doesn't all fall through. But we don't think about that. It's important to discuss our loading. Very good. That'll wrap up another hour of Ken the Contractor. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or online kenthecontractor.com. For Ken the Contractor, I'm Joe Britt. Thanks for joining us this hour. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.